Welcome to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marina Buxov, holistic health coach, clinical herbalist, and functional medicine pharmacist, or just holistic pharmacist for short. Whether you're a healthcare professional helping to support the health of your clients or going through your personal healing journey, I believe you will find yourself right at home with this podcast. My co-hosts and I will be merging the scientific with the holistic all season long, as well as sharing stories that will touch your heart and challenge your mind. Please enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I'm honored to have partnered up with the Pharmacy Podcast Network to reach a wider audience of pharmacists and other healthcare professionals that can get inspired by some of our amazing guests. Today's guest is no different, and I can't wait to introduce him. This episode was recorded a while back, and our guest has been up to some exciting projects before we got a chance to air it. So make sure to take a look at the show notes to check out the links we share and to explore his more recent ventures. Dr. Delon Canterbury is the CEO founder of Dreatrix, a senior care consulting company specializing in pharmacogenomics, medication deprescribing, and health cost savings for providers, caregivers, and patients. Fired in the height of COVID, Delon took the opportunity to pursue his passion for patient advocacy and empowerment while battling for health equity by addressing social barriers to care. Instead of pursuing another corporate job, he invested in himself and started his own company. Geriatrics has saved his patients well over $150,000 within its first year while keeping loved ones from being involuntarily committed into a nursing home. In the past year, Delon has garnered attention from numerous media outlets, including ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS, while also serving as a local COVID expert. Geriatrics is a pharmacist-led medication management company that focuses on helping overwhelmed caregivers stop their loved ones from being over-medicated using genetic drug screening, deprescribing, and health cost-saving strategies. They specialize in developing medication action plans for patients of all ages, but with a specialty in geriatric care. Unlike your traditional pharmacist, Geriatrics develops a three-month strategy to address over-medicated patients using a holistic and evidence-based approach in accordance with your prescribers so that there are no gaps in communication of care. Founder of the Deprescribing Accelerator, Delon envisions all pharmacists and senior care providers as deprescribing advocates and coaches, professionals on how to integrate deprescribing into their clinical practice. He provides a concierge and personalized approach to health solutions, helping to address financial barriers to care while bridging healthcare gaps using a specialty service of medication therapy management. His staff are also certified pharmacogenomics counselors, meaning that they're able to screen for harmful drug interactions with your body and get a closer look at a patient's genes to assess harmful medication risks in therapy. So without further ado, let's welcome Delon to the show. All right. Hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have with me today, Dr. Delon Canterbury. He is a concierge pharmacist and he's the CEO of Geriatrics. So welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. And thank you for having me on. How are you doing, Marina? It's our pleasure to have you. So I'd love to dive into your story and your journey. So can you start off with where you grew up and how you became a pharmacist? For sure. Uh, yeah. So definitely happy to be here. Uh, just for those who may not know about me, I am a, I'm actually a descendant of two immigrants. My parents are from South America, Guyana. And I grew up very much interested in herbal medicine, natural products, learning what the science was behind, you know, all these plants that my mom would use uh, really to treat any cold or ailment that we had. And so that got me thinking about, okay, I love to serve. I love to help people. So what's the science behind this medicine? And that kind of got me into the world of pharmacy, honestly, and medicine as a whole and healthcare. So with that kind of upbringing, I want to know that nerdy science detail part behind it. And that's what led me to become a pharmacist. Um, but also what added to that was 
my grandmother actually suffered from dementia and my parents, you know, as immigrants, weren't really sure how to maneuver the healthcare landscape and taking care of her. It was very confusing and frustrating for them. And unfortunately, her dementia had worsened so badly that they had to take her out of her nursing home in New York and move her down to Atlanta into our home. So my parents at this time, this is a couple of years before I got into pharmacy school, they were just trying to figure out what to do with her, how to you know, manage her meds, how to get caregiver support through Medicare. And for four months, they weren't sure what to do. And her symptoms of dementia and confusion had significantly declined. It wasn't until a community pharmacist reached out to us when we kept wondering why was she so lost and confused that she was on an inappropriately prescribed medication. And so that medication had caused so much harm for my grandma. I'm talking about wandering at night, you know, hiding her dentures multiple times, like just cost my parents a lot of money and headache. But that pharmacist stood up and advocated for us. And if it wasn't for her advocacy, we wouldn't have the doctor stop the medication and eventually have my grandma live to see 90 years of age and have most of those symptoms resolved. So again, that's a part of my impetus in being not only a pharmacist, but also a, a geriatric pharmacist that helped me kind of spearhead my, my curiosity in the geriatric space as well. Yeah, sounds so, like a pivotal moment. Yeah, very much so. It's something you just don't forget, you know, and especially with your loved one and seeing the struggle in your parents' eyes, it gets, you know, it's heartbreaking. So I never forgot that, that moment. And so fast forward a little bit to later, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up in Atlanta, uh, Georgia. I went to Emory University for undergrad and ended up going to UNC for pharmacy school and finished up in 2014. So, you know, I, I worked as an intern uh, with Walgreens. So I was a floater and then eventually became a pharmacy manager. So I was your, your community Walgreens pharmacy manager for about six years and worked in Henderson, North Carolina and all across the Research Triangle in Durham Chapel Hill area uh, here in North Carolina. So, you know, to, to get into the nitty gritty of it, I, uh, you know, I wasn't really truly satisfied in the community retail space. I kind of kept seeing the same patterns of issues with my patients that were either elderly or uh, minority patients who may have had some language barriers. And I just kept seeing so many commonly solved problems come to our pharmacy counter. And I'm like, how many times am I gonna have to solve this? Like, why does this keep happening to my patients that are majority disenfranchised or marginalized or generally just think everything's going fine with their meds, right? And so when you keep seeing duplicate therapies, um, you know, just terrible drug interactions that could have been avoided to, to begin with, you want to figure out as a pharmacist, how can I stop this before it gets too out of control, right, in the healthcare system? How can we be a little more integrated into the system so our patients aren't coming with all these issues uh, and we're reacting to right. their healthcare condition, you know? Um, so seeing that day in and day out and doing all I can, there's not always time in the day to help everyone a thousand percent like we want to as pharmacists. And so to be honest with you, Marina, I got really burned out. I started to hate, you know, myself. I started to hate my profession. I really started to hate, you know, sadly enough, my, my patients. I started to hate that this was just what was what we, how we saw them. You know, it was very metrics driven to me and we weren't holistically treating people that way we should. So, you know, I was depressed and I started thinking, let me get back to what brings me joy as a pharmacist. Why did I start this to begin with? Like, why am I here? And to kind of hit that out of that, you know, slump I had, I started going back to volunteer work, you know, the things we did in school, like SNAFA or whatever association you're part of. I was like, let me get back to the volunteering and just doing things out of my heart and, and networking with people in this space. So to get out of that trench, I, while I was still a pharmacy manager, you know, I try to reach out to local nonprofits and see how I can be of service as a pharmacist. And I met this amazing group. Uh, they're called Senior Pharmacists. They're based in uh, Durham, North Carolina. They're a nonprofit. 
And their entire focus is getting people enrolled into Medicare objectively with a focus of cost savings and uh, drug optimization. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Isn't this something we all should do anyway, like every day? Um, And I'm like, this is great. So let me try to like volunteer and just be a a member. And so I was in, I didn't know anything about Medicare at the time. I didn't know anything about really geriatric care as much. I had just gotten my uh, board certified geriatric uh, credential, but I never like put it into practice, right? Um, so just being exposed into, you know, using Medicare plan finders, helping to weigh decisions for patients and doing, um, basically streamlined communication between their providers at Duke with the pharmacist angle was just eye-opening for me, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be in an integrated healthcare space? So Honestly, that was like my pride and passion. I still volunteer with them. And that is what inspired me to start a concierge service where we can offer those things, but also help people literally as a pharmacist on retainer, uh, guide them through their healthcare journey. And so that is the value I feel pharmacists bring. And that's really what started me to finally launch geriatrics um, fully in the height of COVID. Whoa. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And there is a lot in there that I'd like to dive into a little bit more and dissect. So first of all, how old were you when you moved to the States? And did your family settle in Atlanta right away? And was there a particular reason that you settled there? Yeah. So my parents, um, they came to New York in the early 80s and they were already well they actually just got married when they got to new york uh but when they wanted to have kids they didn't want them to grow up in guyana you know third world country in south america and wanted better opportunities for us so you know i along with my brother uh devon and my younger sister dacia i'm the eldest of three we were all born in new york but they didn't want us to grow up in new york so we um, ended up moving between the ages of eight and nine down to Atlanta, and it was really because, you know, cheaper cost of living, you know, more opportunities for growth, and um, uh, we also had some family down here, uh, down in Atlanta as well. So I was born here, but specifically we chose New York because a lot of the Caribbean influences kind of, they immigrate to, you know, Canada or New York, and then they kind of spread out along uh, the East Coast or other parts of the U.S. So yeah, Atlanta was, was always been home for me. And then I, I left after college and moved to North Carolina in um, 2010. Nice. Yeah, New York is certainly a melting pot. All the immigrants congregate here. And yeah. I'm one of them and I'm still here. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll move out to the countryside soon, but for now I'm still here. Um, cool. So what do you remember, you know, about your childhood. And like you said, it's so interesting that you became a pharmacist, even though your earlier influences were really about the herbals and natural medicine. So what do you think about you being exposed to that and you choosing kind of the allopathic Western pharmacy route? You know, how were you influenced by your background and um, what were kind of the significant shifts that you saw in yourself and how do you see yourself integrating those two things now? Yeah, excellent question. So, I mean, you know, we, we grew up in Brooklyn, man. So you could find any herb, any thing from the home <laughs> country and get those remedies down. And so, you know, a lot of us in our family, the kids, we, we had asthma. And so, you know, in New York, it's actually pretty common to have asthma in urban settings anyway, you have a higher risk factor for that. But we um, were really big on just natural holistic approaches before, of course, medicine. We would still use both, don't get me wrong. But, you know, we, we grew up with peppermint oil, on the, a little bit of peppermint oil on the chest or nose, um, a little bit of Vicks Vaporub. We put that on everything. Like that was our herbal remedy. Um, my mom was a huge fan of making uh, what was called bitter. So she would boil like the neem plant and some other um, herbals that I can't even name uh, to clean our blood, you know? 
And so when you grow up with this, you're like, okay, this is normal. Like, I don't see a problem with this. And to be honest with you, it was why I got interested in natural products and um, pharmacognosy, which is study of natural products to make new drugs. And we know 99% of all drugs come from plants. So it's like, there is science behind it. Um, so in terms of how that dictated my career, uh, it, 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 was, it was actually a blessing, you know? I, we would go to Guyana and my mom would still remember plants that she just knew from childhood. It's like, this is for this, this is for that. I'm like, this is, this is mind blowing. Like you don't even study, she's a teacher. <laughs> She's a math teacher and she still knows all the little tricks. And I'm like, this is so cool. So again, I mean, that goes back into that, not just green thumb, but just that, that altruistic selfless nature of being a pharmacist, right? When you know what a certain plant can do and you can heal someone with it, why wouldn't you use that power? So, you know, fast forward to my other career as a pharmacist, um, I love preventative health. I mean, I feel like that's kind of where we should be as a healthcare uh, system, but we kind of fail to address. And uh, frankly, having more infrastructure and funding for that would probably save a lot more lives than our reactive healthcare system we have now. So, you know, it drove a lot of what I was interested in doing. I, you know, I, I loved research. I loved kind of finding the root of it, but I ended up having a little bit of a change of heart while I was in school uh, and really had more of a calling for public health and community service with a little bit of preventive health in there. So it's honestly been integral in my practice now. And then frankly, as a community pharmacist, you're gonna be asked, what do you think about this herbal? What do you think about that? And so, and then there's commercials left and right. So you kind of have to have a good pulse on what is clinically sound and you know what maybe just you know uh, snake oil. So right. you know, it, it doesn't go away. So I feel it's something we shouldn't really necessarily frown upon. I mean, science started with something, right? And a lot of it here were, they were plant-based. This, this is what the earth gave us. So, you know, you can't just think that, oh, well, everything should be Western. Like the world is just different. And so being a pharmacist, I can culturally understand why certain people aren't gonna jump to a medicine if they may try, you know, something natural. But again, doesn't mean something natural is always safe. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing that we have to be very ardent in uh, communicating to our patients. Uh, but it also means, you know, they may be more comfortable. And so you need to have that cultural understanding. Uh, so you're not just coming in and just being patriarchal and telling people what to do. And that's very important in healthcare. Absolutely. 100% agree. Uh, patriarchal and patronizing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so pharmacist, I believe, really did evolve with natural medicine, as you were saying, because pharmacy as a practice evolved from studying pharmacognosy and turning plants into medications, into medicine, and eventually into drugs and semi-synthetic, synthetic, and biologic nowadays. So it's an evolution, but science is ultimately being open-minded and really observing asking questions, hypothesizing, and then proving or disproving the uh, experimentation or observation. But you can't really uh, neglect all those thousands and centuries of years that were observational. You know, maybe it wasn't scientifically published in peer-reviewed journals, but there is a different type of evidence and qualities of evidence that we can look back to and really uh, integrate those, what we have access to nowadays because the information's at our fingertips. And like you said, it's important mm -hmm. to discern what level of evidence and information we have and pharmacists could be in that position to help navigate that for patients. So not everything natural is safe. Uh, not every FDA approved drug is safe and effective either. You know, the, every drug, comes with a risk and benefit, you know, it's just yin and yang. There's not, you know, one hundred percent beneficial thing that you're intaking into your body. And even like something you think of as a beneficial food, like broccoli or kale, if you eat too much of it raw or juice too much of it could be detrimental to your thyroid. So even things that we consider really healthy have caveats and it's really important for us as clinicians and practitioners to 
examine the evidence with an open mind of a scientist and not just denounce something without investigating it first. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, you have to have this mindset. Um, you just can't assume that our own little bubbles are what's always right, you know? And that's, even outside of medicine, that's just facts. So having that objectivity is an important way to be the best healthcare professional himself. Yeah, and I like how you were describing your mom, even though she's a math teacher, so she's not, you know, per se a healthcare practitioner, but she was able to name all these plants and recognize, um, knows the botany and identification and was able to utilize it in her own family and with her children's health, kind of like as a first line to turn to, as you were saying, mm -hmm. um, before things you know get bad enough where you need to seek more care from a doctor or take a medication. It's kind of like that self-care first line of treatment that you can employ in your own home. Right. And I think what you're describing is really what we all have potentially access to as citizens of the earth and as these potential medicines that exist in the bountiful earth and just being aware of our surroundings and everything that's growing around us, whether or not it can be potentially toxic or it can be potentially medicinal and beneficial, mm -hmm. just being aware and having that you know, awareness that we're not <laughs> the only things on this planet, there's other things around us, uh, other living things that we can, you know, utilize or turn to for food and shelter and all the stuff that our ancestors inherently had to find out. But now we're just so dependent on the systems that are built that we forget yeah. that there's this intimate relationship that we can build. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, uh, yeah, <laughs> so many to unwrap with that. Um, it's just especially where we're going with the recent, you know, climate change announcement. I mean, we do have a connection with the earth and it's something that we have to respect and appreciate and also acknowledge that as we continue to, you know, pillage these natural resources, we may be potentially losing cures to something like we need to keep that in mind as we keep destroying our planet. I mean, a lot of our cancer meds may have come from natural sources. And I mean, we could be losing a cure or, you know, an animal that may have something in their skin that could be extracted and, and used for a treatment. So, you know, we're all connected. So I appreciate you definitely mentioning that. Yeah, exactly. We are all connected. And the key, as we're finding out to health is actually biodiversity. So if it's our microbiome that's biodiverse and the species that are thriving there and, you know, making sure that there is a balance between the opportunistic pathogens and the commensals is there, or whether it's out in the jungle and there's a biodiverse, you know, ecosystem there that we don't want to disturb. And if we just take one element out of there because we think it's toxic, it actually destroys all the intricate connections that... Mm -hmm there or how we uh, moved uh, the wolf population here in the northeast and now there's so many deer and then they're carriers of ticks and lime so it's a problem when we kind of meddle in a way that we think is beneficial but it turns out to kind of mess up the ecology that's there mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah it's it's so true and it's it's really just well said i mean yeah, we, we have a long way to go. So I'm, I'm hoping, and it starts with you, it starts with how you respond as well. Um, but I do wish we had a little more um, global uh, initiative for us to get to this point and um, not kind of blaming just the community people. Like, I mean, we know it's there are bigger powers at play when it comes to the polluting aspects. Um, but again, we have more to come on that, right? Yeah, I agree with you. Definitely, it would be nice if we had a systematic approach and support from the system. But uh, I think you're right in that it does start with you. And also education is very important. So if you are able to get educated in these topics, and then you can educate others, that's how you can spread the awareness mm -hmm. and everybody could play their small part. Yeah, yeah. And this is like, that's right up my sister's alley. I almost wish she was here because that's that's kind of her passion project is um, 
getting into eco-friendly uh, fashion design and eco-friendly like production and, and travel and she's just that's just her alley so you guys should definitely talk just that's <laughs> yeah thing. yeah let me know I'm interested in eco-friendly fashion she can design something for me <laughs> yeah yeah man she loves it <laughs> and what about your brother what does he do yeah, my brother is, um, he is uh, a turntablist here in Atlanta, um, but he has actually pivoted to um, AR scouting. So basically talent scouting for record labels. So he looks for up and coming artists that will potentially, you know, blow up in the next near future. Um, and he uses social media algorithms to predict which artists may be the next big thing. So he, he currently works with Motown and is um uh, he's also here in atlanta or he's in atlanta right now as well awesome wow so three children all raised in the same household with natural medicine but one of them goes into healthcare and the others don't (laughs) why do you think that happened what do you think drew you in particular to healthcare and then in i know you shared the story about the pharmacist and um especially the geriatrics aspect of it but what do you think in particular maybe was like that needle for you, move the needle for you and the driver behind that? And also, um, how do you think or was there somebody in your family that influenced you or did you have any healthcare practitioners in your family going back? Is there any connection there? No, honestly, uh, I was the very first uh, person to go into healthcare in my family. Uh, my dad's an accountant. My mom is a math teacher. And my mom also had, like, I don't know, eight or nine siblings, all, most of which have immigrated to the US. None of them were healthcare professionals either. And I think a lot of it for me was a mixture of who I was in terms of serving people and community service and advocating for, for people's health. Um, it was a mixture of that. And it was also a mixture of the nerdy part of me that just loves chemistry and loves math and science. And if I could mix my love for math and science to heal people, you know, uh, why not? And I, didn't, I wasn't interested in, in, in becoming a medical doctor per se. Um, and it was primarily because I was more fascinated with the drugs than the actual science of diagnosing. I just I don't care what the diagnosis is, but if you know it's damn 100% right, <laughs> let's use the right drugs. So I'm like, okay, that's the part I like, the mechanisms, the side effects, how does things work? Um, so really I was the first to do that. And in terms of the actual reason why, I would say the reason why would be because, I mean, my mom was a was a great role model for me. She, she put amazing ideas in my head, but I was really torn between becoming a forensic scientist because I, again, I love the nerdy part, but I also liked morbid death, cool stuff. And then I also liked, uh, uh, I also thought about being like an actuarial scientist, which is not really as like cool to say. <laughs> and then of course there's like, if I can heal people, um, I'll do pharmacy. And uh, a lot of it stems from, honestly, and the beauty about being, you know, having families from other countries is there's an innate, need to travel or want of travel to see other family, whatever. And so in our travels, my mom would take us to our home country. They would take us to, you know, El Salvador, all types of uh, places in the Caribbean, um, you know, Alaska, Europe, et cetera. And we would see, you know, where our family members came from. We would see homes that aren't fully built, but that's where eight people are living. And you, you, it hits home where, you see the, the gaps in health equity and health care, uh, especially as a minority and African-American pharmacist, you, it, doesn't, it doesn't go away, right? And so when you start seeing how much, how, how little people have as a child, as a teenager, preaching when we're, you know, going to these amazing places, you know, for me as the eldest son, I took it upon myself to just like always want to help those who don't have access. And we take for granted so much what we have in the U.S. and what we have here. And, you know, talk to other people who don't even have access to a vaccine right now, and they're going through so much hell. And so, you know, I would say there was a little bit of maturity at a younger age for me, and it was just that need to serve. And that's what, that's what pharmacy did for me. 
Yeah, you've been mentioning the service and especially community service and work. So does that also come from you seeing how other people live and how underserved certain people are? And is there any other reason why you were really drawn to community work? Or maybe were your parents really big into volunteer work? Or why do you think you were really passionate about this? You know, I would say a lot of it was, again, seeing my family not have, and it was because of, it could be systemic, it could be hearing of a loved one who could have had a death prevented. Um, so, I mean, we grew up, we, you know, my parents weren't exactly the biggest community service types. And frankly, I don't think I was until I um, really went to college and started being involved in serving low-income students and or mentoring students or joining um, Alpha Phi Alpha. I'm a member of that fraternity as well, which is uh, the fraternity that MLK is a part of, as well as, well as other esteemed brothers. Um, and so that part of service and history kind of stuck with me as I joined and I kept, you know, I became the uh, blood drive coordinator at Emory University and we partnered and had uh, amazing events, had some of the most pints donated while we were in school in the metro Atlanta area for a small college. And I mean, that kind of part of me stuck with me. And I was like, yo, that's, that brings me happiness, you know? And again, that's why I had to step down from uh, being a pharmacy manager. I was just like, look, I don't feel like I'm serving people to my full extent and it's not filling my cup as who I, as who I am as an individual. So, you know, it's, it's a great question. It, it kind of became naturally a part of me as I matured and grew. Um, but, you know, my parents were, were busy raising three kids. I mean, my mom was very involved with, uh, with our church. You know, we grew up Catholic. And so, you know, she was a lecturer. I was a, I was a server. But I mean, you know, I've learned later in life, uh, as my mom is now retired, that she is a huge service person. She's all about service now. She's always giving back to her students. Uh, and so I think in different ways, we've found that calling in our, in our passions and joys. Yeah, I was going to say that church is a huge influence on some people in terms of bringing community together, mm -hmm. sharing common beliefs and goals and celebrating together or sometimes grieving together, but also providing service together. So um, that's something that also some people can take for granted, like not realizing that other people don't have that outlet or that feeling of community. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe somehow you got this sense from your mom about service inherently, like without really <laughs> acknowledging yeah. that that's what she was performing, but she was performing like different acts of service that you picked up on. Yeah. Unofficial, yeah. maybe. <laughs> Officially, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your career in pharmacy and how you rose through the ranks and become and how did you become pharmacy manager and when did that happen? Oh yeah, so I uh, <laughs> a little bit of luck, a little bit of being in the right place at the right time, but I, uh, you know, you know, just to be transparent with you, I. I almost nearly got kicked out of pharmacy school and it was because uh, we had a pass fail class and there was one case where uh, like a lot of people kind of failed and it, because the class was pass fail, if you fail one case, it's like you failed a whole thing. And so I failed um, by like, I don't know, two points or something. And it was literally the last thing before fourth year rotation. So I was livid and I had really amazing elective rotations lined up. Um, but during that time, I was forced to remediate, you know, for half a semester and do the, the case over a couple of times with different teachers. And so that threw off my graduation trajectory. Mm. And unfortunately, that also led to, you know, not being technically a student because I wasn't full time. So now I'm here like, how am I gonna maintain my, my lifestyle and, and yeah. school and get a job? And so I had to get a job and I ended up working in research in a antimicrobial lab. And I worked as a pharmacy intern for Walgreens. And, you know, 
you know, God has a funny way of turning like nightmares into blessings. And so what I saw was this is terrible. This is not right. I'm better than this um, was me learning at a busy 24 hour, 24, seven tier three, three or four pharmacy uh, in Durham uh, near South Point Mall. And I honestly learned so much. I mean, so much about how to talk to people, how to, you know, find little secrets to the systems. And so that delay in my graduation uh, honestly led to me getting a lot of experience. And I didn't, mm-hmm. it, I didn't appreciate it then because I'm just a salty pharmacist <laughs> student. Like, why is this happening to me? But I found out in retrospect that that made me one of the best floaters in the district. I was a high performer. And so I quickly got a manager position within five months of me floating around the triangle and of course being super you know in debt and willing to just <laughs> take as much overtime as possible um, but I got my name out and so I, I became a pharmacy manager because the current one at the time uh, had kids that were going to school and they had to move from Henderson to Raleigh and so they would no longer be able to serve uh, at that store so right place right time I floated there. Everyone liked me. They suggested that I become either staff or manager. And uh, the current manager there trained me. So they knew my quality and honestly recommended a DM. And it was right place, right time. I became a pharmacy manager at a tier three, you know, about 490 day script store in a very rural, uh, high, uh, high drug trafficking, uh, high volume town. And, you know, Henderson was great. The people were humble. They were awesome. My staff was amazing. Um, And I learned a lot about working with uh, driving metrics, moving numbers, motivating your team members, being a leader, all the things that you don't really learn in pharmacy school unless you do extracurricular stuff. So, you know, being a pharmacy manager, I'm not going to say it was all bad. Learning a lot on how to drive a team is probably the most important thing I took away from that experience. So, I did that for two years, um, and then I got promoted to become a Walgreens uh, pharmacy manager for the, our specialty site. So I worked as an HIV pharmacist mm. uh, for about half a year, and this was also while managing a team of um, like, I don't know, 12 techs and 10 or 15 pharmacists uh, at our specialty site. So I'm managing everything. Um, uh, for the intricacies, the, it was, that was a lot. <laughs> um, and that job was very difficult. It was two jobs in one. Mm-hmm. And I ended up stepping down and going to another busier tier four pharmacy, which was a 24 seven hour pharmacy, the exact same one that I was an intern in uh, about eight years before. So I ended up managing that one and did that for two years. And that was where uh, my mind was finally burned the hell out and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I stepped down and tried to pivot to becoming a poison control pharmacist, which was really cool. Uh, I ended up doing that for about uh, about a, a quarter and that was when COVID hit. And so they had layoffs, I was laid off. And in the middle of COVID, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> How am I going to get some money? And so it was tough, man. I was, I was depressed, distraught. And again, what looked like a negative thing ended up being me jumping into geriatrics, uh, full-fledged, taking time to repurpose who I am. Okay, how am I going to serve people? How am I going to, you know, actually be happy? And then how am I going to make some money in the process? And so this is where I even though I was fired, I was angry, I was mad. <laughs> I started doing what I did before. I was like, all right, I'm going to start this business and I'm going to volunteer. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So that got me involved with uh, being a part of the African-American COVID task force here in Durham, North Carolina. That got me involved again with senior pharmacists. And they, I was a part of their formulary exec board members where we would talk through, you know, drug decision makings or next year's formulary because they had a copay program. They can get discounts for certain drugs for Medicare patients. And then I also served temporarily as a telehealth director uh, for Community Health Coalition, which was basically doing uh, COVID check-in calls for um, African-American uh, old elderly communities who may not have access, you know, to a lot of fancy technologies and 
just having a team of nurses and social workers call and check in on them, see how they're doing. So again, this gave me a wealth of experience uh, and not only learning how different fields of the trade, but it also played into my business because now people are seeing me in different uh, aspects of service. And like, oh, well, Dr. Canterbury also has geriatrics and he does concierge medicine and helps consult people on the side. And so even though I was thinking I was just doing it for service, it still came back uh, you know, tenfold for my growth as an entrepreneur and for my name recognition, um, which has gotten me a lot of publicity, uh, God willing, in, um, in, in talking about COVID and being featured on the news, being on PBS, being on you know, NBC or WRAL, and, and just talking about some of those myths that we've been hearing about uh, vaccinations. So this all has just spun into something I never thought would be what it is today. And I'm just you know, grateful for the ride and grateful to just have more to come. Yeah, that's quite an amazing and impressive story. Congratulations on that. And those are some diverse experiences. And like you said, they helped you not only expand your portfolios of skills, but network with many different people, interface with different facets of pharmacy and medicine, get your name out there and get people to start paying attention to you and invite you to other opportunities. Yeah, man. Yeah, it, it's been such a great ride. I'm so, so excited. So can I ask for the pharmacy manager role? You mentioned that most of it was about team building, motivation, metrics. So, and then in one pharmacy, you also had to be a full-time pharmacist while being a manager? Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> like, it was wow. It was, and so it, it it truly was a position that was set up for failure. Like it just just the way that this position was made. There's there, especially there. There's so much. The stakes are higher. The reporting is higher. The audits are everything. Just has much more. Uh, intricacies and steps and I mean there's even a whole side of shipping that I'm like I have to know shipping and tracking and hunting down packages that you wouldn't think would be as important but when you're sending you know Harvani and someone's not there to answer the door the most expensive drug in America you know you got to track that package and you got to do a trace and then call FedEx and this is also during like Hurricane Matthew we've had eastern parts of North Carolina flooded and we have patients who are due for their HIV pills and they may not be able to get out their house for two weeks. So imagine a level of critical thinking that's needed to one, formulate a plan, create hubs in those areas, figure out which roads are open, have one of our team members just drive three hours to Elizabeth City and then just drop all the drugs at a potentially open Walgreens while most are closed and then hope the patient gets it. So you have to come up with strategies literally like that. And so that level of, of thoroughness um, is a skill set that uh, you know, I will never take for granted today. But in that setting, it was tough because you have to still manage you know, your transplant team. You got transplant pharmacists and technicians. They've got their own issues as well. You got to manage you know, hep C. You got to manage chronic immune inflammatory diseases. Um, you have to manage everyone and then still have time to manage the HIV patients you have. So it's like doing all that. And then you have a fire thrown at you. Like, hey, Delon, I need you to do this. You can't exactly give your full attention to all my patients. And so after, I don't know, I did that for about uh, six to eight months. I, um, I stepped down. And I was like, this is not feasible. Mm-hmm. And went back to the retail setting. And I didn't want, necessarily want it to. Um, but in terms of like my, my mental state, it was very low, very stressed. I wasn't taking my, any of my, uh, uh, needs as a priority. And I mean, I, it actually was ironic because I'm seeing all the pharmacists around me and they're actually cool. They're chilling. They're like, I see you have a nice desk. You can sit down, you can take a break. And it's like, damn, I'm doing all this as a manager, but I'm still running around with my chicken and my head cut off. Yeah. it's like, it's actually worse than retail. So I was like, uh, because I was a manager, okay? Right. Of course, other people do it and they do it fine, perfect. Where <laughs> I was particularly at that site, at that time, it was very toxic. 
very toxic. So I'm, I'm actually glad I went out and did what I did. Yeah, wow, it sounds super stressful. And like you said, not sustainable, like, nope. yeah. Nope. So what were some of your rotations like? Did, you said that you chose some nice rotations at the end of pharmacy school. What were your favorites? Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> uh, man, I loved all my rotations. I loved fourth year so much. <laughs> um, so the very first one I had was probably the hardest one, but it set the tone for what type of fourth year pharmacy student I wanted to be. And it was nephrology. And nephrology is great in that it really does encompass every disease state. And you have to understand the kidney and of course its function and how it works. And then how you uh, dose drugs accordingly, uh, depending on their staging and understanding what dialysis means, what that process is for the patient. And so it really opened my eyes, honestly, to patients that honestly look like me. They're usually black or Latina in end-stage renal disease. And they felt a connection with me. I actually had my uh, grand rounds presentation on one of these patients who I actually tracked for about six to eight months after because he and I had such a rapport with each other. You know, he was a guy who was pretty much my age with um, uh, uh, what's called um, SLE, which is uh, systemic lupus erythematous basically was involved with his kidney. So he had lupus that would just hit his, it was lupus nephritis, excuse me. Uh, so he had uh, lupus nephritis and um, that's really tricky to treat. Um, and so he, he was in and out. He was in, he was in an inpatient for, I don't know, like three or four weeks. He kept getting uh, meningitis. He kept getting crypto. Um, it, it was a tough, it was a tough case. He kept getting LPs like pretty much every day. It was a tough guy, but he kept fighting. And I love the guy, he was a cool guy. And so nephrology taught me so much about uh, being that human touch for patients in the inpatient setting. And it reminded me of why I'm doing this. And so when you could see a black pharmacist treating you with the team, it, it can give a little bit of peace of mind as a minority. It's just something that's great to have a doctor look like you. And so you yeah. feel like you're in trusted care. And, you, this is something that shouldn't be neglected. That's an important part of healthcare is if you don't have trust or connection, you're not gonna have a patient buy-in. And if you don't have patient buy-in, they're not gonna listen to what you say. So mm -hmm. uh, that was a humbling experience, but I was going, uh, I love nephro. Uh, my second favorites were honestly public health. There was one at the, in DC, at the Management for Sciences and Health Center. Uh, they are a global nonprofit and they work with pretty much public health students, epidemiologists, and some pharmacists who work internationally, right? And they partner with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, PEPFAR. They do nonprofit work where they're looking at ways to provide strategic supply management for people who really don't have access. And I'm talking about third world countries, which is what's home to me uh, and my family. So I actually had a project focusing on Tanzania, and in Tanzania, they have pretty much a broken healthcare system. So we see how in America we have, you know, Walgreens and CVS pharmacies everywhere. That's actually the main hub of healthcare in rural settings in Tanzania. And they're called ADOs, A-D-D-Os. It's short for something in their language. I don't know. But ADOs are basically like having a mini pharmacist in these really rural settings where it takes a day and a half to get to town to see a you know, huge medical center. But these are the points of care. And so we were looking at adopting uh, cheaper formularies that are better uh, clinically sound for people in that demographic and making sure that they were affordable too. So it was really unique and looking at ways we can creatively help with what's called the, the national drug list. And so this is kind of like me being in that formulary committee with senior pharmacists, but basically you're choosing or at least piloting what to choose uh, for cheaper drug options for these addos so people can actually afford to get their insulin or afford to get their diabetic meds. And so it was a really dope project. I mean, we worked with pharmacists across the world, pharmacists who are in the thick of it in Nairobi, Kenya, China, Bangladesh, South America, 
it was just such an amazing experience. I never knew pharmacists were even in that space. And at the time, I was very much interested in um, supply chain management. Um, and so, and there's also something that we tend to forget is they have a lot of contraband and counterfeit drugs. It's like mm-hmm. a completely different game where there's countries with no FDAs right. overwatching. And so you're looking at people, you know, getting faulty equipment or, uh, drugs that aren't what they're labeled as, or, you know, just uh, just straight counterfeit or nothing at all, just scamming people. So it's a whole nother world to managing people um, with supply chain and drug supply uh, delivery. Wow. Yeah. It sounds kind of like pharmacists without borders. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's a great way to put it. Wow. Sounds cool. Yeah. I just looked up Addo. It's accredited drug dispensing outlet programs. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Good. But yeah, man, yeah, that, that was, that was so much fun. It, it was just great to see that there are people thinking like out of the box and it gave me a little bit of hope for, you know, it, when I grow to become that international, um, that international figure in this uh, pharmacist space. Amazing. Big goals. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, now tell us a little bit more about what your current services are, you know, what does your business do and also reflect on how you kind of preemptively got the board certified in geriatrics, right? And then it kind of just right away came, came in handy when you were opening up your business. Yeah. Yeah, it it did. I had no plan at the time of having (laughs) my own business. Um, I got my BCGP in 2017, and that was like two or three years of me being a pharmacy manager. Um, but in terms of what I offer with geriatrics, I it's a, it's a little bit unique. So I'm a concierge pharmacist. And what that means is I work for families and caregivers on retainer, just like how you may have a lawyer or you know doctor who just makes house calls. I'm a pharmacist who does that. And so what that means is I provide not only a comprehensive medication review, but I also integrate precision medicine, which is genetic testing with my uh, med reviews. And so if there are any issues that I find um, or recommendations I need to make, I create a health action plan, communicate those plans with the patient to see if they're in alignment. And then we work together as a team with their doctors. So I'm saying I literally go to the doctor's office with my patients and do my med review um, as a team. And so we provide basically bedside uh, counseling on any medications. We provide, of course, genetic testing. Uh, We provide especially de-prescribing practices. So we look for ways to get people off of medication safely. And we also Um, We also look at health cost savings. So we have to look for discounts and ways to make sure that things are affordable and that people are using uh, all the tools available to make sure they're getting the best out of their healthcare. So we roll that all into one retainer package that people just pay a monthly retainer for. I don't involve any insurances. It's all cash-based. It's fairly niche, but we have patients who you know, come to us and they are in need. Honestly, we cannot neglect how important the pharmacist value is and looking at, you know, unnecessary prescribed medications or harmful medications. And so I honestly, during my time of being fired during COVID, I actually wrote about potentially inappropriate medications. It's my first publication. Um, it's uh, an ACCP therapeutics chapter, but it's, I talk about um, potentially uh, potentially PIMS, oh my gosh, potentially inappropriate medications and how I talk about the beers list and ways that we as pharmacists need to be able to pinpoint uh, these medications. And, you know, that BCGP uh, actually made, uh, it made things very much come full circle when it came to my first patient. And she was, you know, segue, she was an 80 year old woman. She was over-medicated she uh, was on Seroquel for no really any rhyme or reason, uh, but she was suffering just like my grandma with chronic confusion, uh, irritability, uh, anger, constipation. And we were able to prove, and mind you, this woman came to us with 36 medications, okay? 36 medications. We deprescribed her down to eight 
And we were able to prove in the court of law that our patient was being over-medicated and that she was suffering from what's called anticholinergic toxicity. Mm-hmm. And so with that being shown, unfortunately she had an ugly court battle where they were trying to involuntarily commit her. We were able to show, hey, look, it's the meds. Don't worry about committing her. Just get her off some of these meds and we, I'm sure she'll get better. And thankfully she did. And the course Kate the court case was actually dropped with our testimony and our med review, and we managed to save our patients well over $150,000 in nursing home costs. So that was my very first patient wow. all during COVID. And I tell you, that was where, where I was like, I shed a tear because I was so happy at the impact I made as a pharmacist. And what I think was my calling uh, that I think God showed me in this business. So it's been it's been a roller coaster ever since. Wow, that's amazing! Congratulations on all of that and getting published. Yeah, that, thank you. Yeah, thank big you. big stuff. Um, so that's really cool. Um, in terms of when you implement your deep prescribing and talking to the doctors. Um, how did you, and also the genetic piece of it? Can you talk about how you got into the precision medicine piece? Sure. So at least for that case, I wasn't doing precision medicine just yet. I used precision medicine a couple months later. I finally got my certificate last year. Um, I took a certificate course with um, um, Sue Paul, who's an amazing leader in precision medicine and genetic testing. Uh, but she has a course she offers, uh, I think every couple of months, it's called PGX 101, mm-hmm. costs maybe about 550 bucks or so. But again, that's a lifetime value that you get to be, you know, seen as a consultant in uh, genetic testing. And so that's what I did. Uh, I did that about three months after that first case. And now all of my patients, I, I integrate that precision model. But in terms of like getting everything together, um, when you have patients that just want a better quality of life and they just are tired of taking all these meds and things aren't working, they're gonna come to people. They, they're gonna be frustrated, right? So they wanna find a way out. And so I already had customer buy-in about trying to get her off of all these meds. Mm-hmm. The patient and the caregiver are both in accord. They're able to hire me. And then we as a team come to the doctor and say, hey, look, here's a plan what do you think? We're not going to tell you what to do, but here's a plan I've made. I want you to have us all work together so we can see the true value of what a pharmacist can do. And that was the most rewarding part too, was not only was the case dropped, but now the doctor sees the value in what we did and their practice has been thankful for that. And so we honestly, we just created that health action report went into the office and we just went through each recommendation one by one and most were taken to heart. And to this day, we got her down to those eight minutes. Wow. And do you find that practitioners and providers, doctors are open to this kind of um, teamwork? For the most part, yes. Doctors want to know, how do you provide value? How do you save me time? And how can I also make a little bit of money in the process? And COVID unfortunately has shed a lot of light to how broken our healthcare systems are, where medical offices now are running in the red because they're just not making enough money. Mm -hmm. And so if a pharmacist can show that my patients are faring better with your constant check-ins and and, and guidance and oversight, then why wouldn't I want that? And so some people may be skeptical and that's fine. But sometimes it takes a little bit of educating and talking to, especially when it comes to uh, genetic testing that some doctors are still not comfortable with. But really, we're all in this together. And you may have some that are territorial and they're like, I don't want to work. I don't need you, blah, blah, blah. And that can cause some problems. But you want a team of people looking at one patient. You don't want just one person and another person all in their individual silos because it just leads to worse outcomes. You may as well have all of us looking at the same patient with the same eyes and getting each other's expertise uh, bought in. So how are clients finding you? Are you building sort of like a referral network where providers know about you and patients know about you? And then if your services are needed, you're called upon? Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely a hybrid of the referral network and 
Uh, also direct to consumer marketing. So I do, you know, a fairly good bit of social media advertising. I do, you know, Facebook lives. I do content around relevant topics for caregivers. Uh, but yeah, I, I do work with networking with uh, providers offices and caregiver uh, uh, support groups. But I've honestly tried uh, more the direct consumer approach because I feel, I, I know it's harder to talk to people uh, directly, but I just feel we as pharmacists need to change the way we're perceived. You know, like I think people need to know what the health pharmacists do and not just your, <laughs> your, your day in, day out, you know, count by fives behind the counter. Like we do so much cool stuff. So I'm like, okay, why not position myself as the expert to the patient? And so when the patient sees the value, they're gonna buy in. And then at that point, the doctor kind of is like, well, you've already spent X, Y, Z. And, you know, most of them are willing to just hear what I have to say at that point, because I'm already on your side. So uh, I do a, a mixture of both. And so working with, you know, caregiver groups like the Alzheimer's Association, um, AARP, other local nonprofits to refer me, I also do direct to consumer uh, advertising with social media. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We're right at the end of the episode, but I'd love to stay on for just one more minute and do the rapid round fire questions. Sure. Sounds great. Okay. So number one, what's your top number one tip uh, for improving someone's quality of life immediately? Uh, immediately, I will say top tip is in a nutshell, motivational interviewing for like the pharmacist side, but the beginning of that starts with empathy. So if you don't have any type of connection or empathy with your patient, you're not going to be able to motivate them. So I'll say technically in a pharmacist lingo, motivational interviewing is probably been the best tool in that aspect of changing behaviors. But ultimately, if you don't have empathy and trust and a connection with your patient, you got to start from there. And otherwise, if you don't come from there, you're just talking in a, in a silo. So empathy and motivational interviewing. Sounds good. Now, what about your top tip for self-care for burned out healthcare professionals? Uh, you know, I was guilty of this, but I did not work out. Not during my tenure as a pharmacy manager at all. I never did. And I kept hearing how great it was to do so. But I will say exercise and or just being in nature, taking a walk, doing something different during your week um, has been uh, pretty important for my business and for my mental health. So I will say exercise one and then I'll probably say therapy second. Nice. Uh, what would you advise to other pharmacists or pharmacy students that are looking to do something different or follow their passion? I will say follow your passion always and make sure whatever your passion is has some type of practicality so that you can make some money off of it. And I say that because we as pharmacists sometimes do things out of the goodness of our heart and we don't always look at the value that we've invested in ourselves and getting our degrees. So I say um, a couple things, but get some type of mentor or business coach that you really wanna get into a field that you really love. And then I also say, don't be afraid to just do something without knowing if you're doing it right. Seriously, the analysis paralysis or overthinking that we have as pharmacists can be detrimental. And I say to just take that leap and then learn on the fly. Don't think everyone has it perfect. Just do something different and then just do a little bit by a little bit until you get to this point where you can really jump in and not sacrifice, you know, your livelihood or finances or whatever. I love that. Take imperfect action. Yes. Great way to put it. I love that. Yeah. And <laughs> lastly, can you share your favorite hobby and your favorite meal and beverage with us? Yeah, my favorite hobby would be video games first and then eating a bunch of fancy foods second and then <laughs> playing the cello. So those three I love to do. Uh, my favorite food, uh, I love so much food. 
Um, but I would say my favorite ingredient is pork belly. I love pork belly. I love <laughs> seared pork belly. I, love, I just love tonkatsu ramen. I just love pork belly anywhere. And the, what else did you say? Beverage. Uh, sorrel. It's, um, it's a, it's a Caribbean drink. It's basically made from the hibiscus plant or hemica or whatever, and they're different names in different world parts of the world, but it's a red drink, mm-hmm. really tasty. Uh, my mom would make it pretty much every summer. So it's sorrel is what we call it in the islands, uh, but it could be called hemica, hibiscus. It's the same plant. So. Yeah, that's delicious. Awesome. Yeah. And it has a lot of benefits yeah. and flavonoids. Oh, yeah. Flavonoids. Gotta have some flavonoids, man. Cool. Um, So please share with the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about what you do. Sure. I'm all over social media. My website for geriatrics is geriatrics.org, G-E-R-I-A-T-R-X as in x-ray dot org. My personal cell phone is on my website. You can also email me directly on there, uh, but I'm all over social. So follow me on geriatrics, at geriatrics. I have a Facebook page, LinkedIn, Twitter, social media, <laughs> Instagram, and um, uh, YouTube. So follow me at geriatrics, uh, but you can find me all over LinkedIn. Just look up my name, Delon Canterbury, and you can just add me. I'd be happy to talk to you. All right. Well, Delon, I'll have all of those links in the show notes for people to quickly click on and find you. And I want to thank you again for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. You have a great week. And thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. You too. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you learned something new from it, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review and share it with a friend who might love it too. You can find me on any of the podcast and social media platforms by looking up Holistic Pharmacist or Dr. Marina Booksub. Thank you for your support and see you next time.